0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. O God, who made the mother of your Son to be our mother and our Queen, graciously grant that, sustained by her intercession, we may attain in the heavenly kingdom the glory promised to your children. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever, Amen. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I am your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and that was the colic from the Queenship of Mary, the feast celebrated last Sunday in the uh, Novus Ordo Mise. We'll talk about that in a moment. Also, have you ever wondered what the New American Bible would sound like if it were actually a formal translation of the Scriptures? Well, today you're going to find out. Also, uh, later on in the last few weeks, we've been talking about Traditiones Custodes, and what that means for the traditional Latin Mass. But I've neglected to mention uh, much about what it says in regard to the Novus Ordo. Uh, And so we're going to take a closer look at a Vatican document on the correct celebration of the Novus Ordo Mise. And I think it's going to be an eye-opener to uh, discover just what the Church really teaches about the proper celebration of the new Mass. Now, a week ago... Sunday was the 15th of August, and so that's, of course, the Feast of the Assumption, uh, which is a holy day of obligation in the United States. Uh, It just so happens that this year it fell on a Sunday. And uh, in the traditional Latin Mass, we always celebrate a commemoration of the Assumption on the following Sunday. It's known as the Sunday within the octave of the Assumption. Uh, And what that means is that uh, in addition to the The proper prayers of that particular Sunday, uh, they would add also a second um, collect and a second secret prayer and a second post-communion prayer, all taken from the Feast of the Assumption. Now, in the new calendar, the 22nd of August, which is the octave day uh, of the Feast of the Assumption, is the Feast of the Queenship of Mary, and that's kind of in accordance with the Fourth and Fifth Glorious Mysteries the Assumption of Our Lady into Heaven, Body and Soul into Heaven, um, is followed by her coronation as Queen of Heaven and Earth. Now, I I, I talked about the Assumption last week, and it is, um, I've come to discover, the most ancient and solemn of all the feasts that Holy Church celebrates in honor of the Blessed Virgin. You know, even feasts like the the Annunciation, and the visitation and the nativity those are really feasts of our lord it's the incarnation and it's uh, when our you know our lady visits elizabeth um you know we have the the magnificat and we have the uh, the holy spirit inspiring not only uh, st elizabeth but john the baptist to recognize the savior right and then the nativity of course is about his birth but uh, this feast the assumption is is particularly about the blessed virgin and and the most ancient of those feasts, um, the term Assumption actually means three things uh, it's the death of the Blessed Virgin, and then her resurrection soon after, and then her entrance, body and soul, into heaven. And, you know, at the present time, the word's used pretty much exclusively to designate um, the Virgin's entrance into heaven, body and soul, uh, in contrast to the ascension. Wherein our Lord goes to heaven under His own divine power, you know, their mother's uh, holy mother's assumption was due solely to the power of God, so that uh, that liturgical feast goes back with certainty, at least to the sixth century, and it became universal in the ninth. Now, regarding the queenship of Mary, according to an ancient tradition in the sacred liturgy, the main principle on which the royal dignity of Mary rests is her divine motherhood. The archangel Gabriel, you know, spoke to Mary about the son that she was going to conceive. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there shall be no end, right? That's Luke 1, uh, 31 through 32. Elizabeth uh, likewise calls her the mother of my Lord. So Mary is a queen since she bore a son who is, um, from the very moment of his conception, because of the hypostatic union of his um, human nature and divine nature, was also uh, king and lord as man, all right? As a man, he was king and lord of all things. And so the voice of the Archangel Gabriel is the first one to proclaim Mary's royal office because she is the mother of the king, she's queen mother. And God, uh, furthermore, has willed Mary to have an exceptional role in the work of our eternal salvation. And that was very much the teaching of the great Marian saint and doctor of the church, and my favorite saint, Bernard of Clairvaux. And we celebrated his feast on Friday of last week, the 20th of August, smacking between those two Marian feasts, the Assumption and the Queenship. Now, uh, if you're a regular listener to No Nonsense Catholic, you already know that I have a great interest in the Middle Ages, or what I would call the age of faith. And there's many fascinating things associated with uh, the Middle Ages. Lots of stuff that we can and have talked about, you know, the Crusades and the Holy Grail and the Knights Templar and the Shroud of Turin and the Canterbury Tales and the the Divine Comedy and the Summa Theologia and the Imitation of Christ, medieval devotions uh, especially to the Passion and devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Holy Rosary, the four Senses of Scripture, the prophecies of St. Malachy, all of this stuff comes to us from from the Middle Ages. But interestingly, there's one thing that all of those topics have in common, and that is St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Now, you know, my Christian name is Matthew, so he's my patron saint, uh, St. Matthew the Evangelist. I chose Sir Thomas More as my confirmation saint, and I love them both. But my absolute, I mean, the one who has become my favorite saint uh, is St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Because for twenty years and more, I, I've just been amazed when I've been doing research on one thing or another. Uh, I inevitably run into Bernard of Clairvaux, and uh, he was literally the the center of the twelfth century universe. He was the most important man in the church, and and he's been almost unbelievably influential on Catholic belief and practice, uh, even to this day. Uh, historically, Saint Bernard uh, famously assisted at the Council of Troyes in eleven twenty eight at which he traced the outlines of the rule of life that he would write for the Knights Templar, uh, and in the process, pretty much single-handedly invented the ideal of Christian chivalry. Uh, on the death of Pope Honorius in 1130, uh, there was a schism in the Church, and King Louis seventh or the sixth rather, called on the French bishops uh, to, to choose someone to mediate, uh, to choose between you know, the, the rival popes, and they chose St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, and then in 1139, Bernard assisted at the Second Lateran uh, Council, which is kind of his as Vatican II. And he saw one of his spiritual sons, Bernard of Pisa, elected pope. He became Pope Eugenius or Pope Eugene III. And when he became pope, he asked Bernard to, uh, to give him some spiritual direction on how to be a good holy father. And Bernard responded with what became his five books, <laughs> that are, are known collectively as De Considerazione on consideration. And you know, Benedict XVI uh, said that that should be required reading for popes today. And obviously, he was familiar with it. Uh, when the Muslims recaptured the city of Edessa, Pope Eugenius commissioned Bernard to preach the Second Crusade. So you know, he was like I say, and that's and that's just scratching the surface. That's just that's just you know hitting the highlights. Bernard died in 1153. He was canonized only 21 years later by Alexander III. In 1830, Pope Pius VIII bestowed upon him the title Doctor of the Church, and he is also known as the mellifluous Doctor for his eloquence, the Oracle of the 12th century for his prophetic utterances, Thaumaturgus of the West for his many miracles that he performed, and quite fittingly, the Arbiter of Christendom, because he helped people, you know, reckon things out. His lasting influence has been so great that Pope Pius XII named him the Last of the Fathers. That is his official title. Now, more, per- uh, more important to me personally, he had a great influence on Thomas a. Kempis, who is the author of The Imitation of Christ, which I read from pretty much every day. Uh, he was extremely influential also in the area of Catholic devotions, uh, the holy face, devotion to the holy name. Uh, in fact, he was the first to use the term the holy name of Jesus. Uh, It was St. Bernard who composed the prayer to the shoulder wound of Christ. And um, he's very devoted to the passion of our Lord and to the suffering of his sacred humanity. In August of 2009, Benedict XVI said, For Bernard, in fact, true knowledge of God consisted in a personal, profound experience of Jesus Christ and of his love. And this is true for every Christian. Faith is first and foremost a personal experience intimate encounter with Jesus, an experience of his closeness, his friendship, and his love. It is in this way that we learn to know him ever better, to love him, and to follow him more and more. So there's there's Bernard in the Middle Ages. I mean, very modern, uh, seemingly, approach, but actually our approach is really very medieval. Finally, St. Bernard had no doubt that through Mary we are led to Jesus per Miriam ad Yesum, Uh, and he said, since we just, this is the Pope, um, uh, quoted this uh, little passage from St. Bernard, and since we just celebrated the Queenship of Mary, I I want to share from that also. This is from his feast for the uh, Octave of the Assumption, or the Queenship of Mary. This is from a sermon that Bernard preached about that, wherein he describes Mary's intimate participation in the sacrifice of her son. He says, O blessed Mother, a sword has truly pierced your soul. So deeply has the violence of pain pierced your soul that we may rightly call you more than a martyr. For you, in participation in the Passion of the Son, by far surpasses in intensity the physical sufferings of martyrdom. It was uh, really Bernard of Clairvaux who hammered out uh, what became the Church's understanding of Mary as co redemptrix and mediatrix of all graces. So a nod to our Blessed Queen and to her uh, devoted servant, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Going to come back with a new Bible translation I think you're going to be interested in. Lots more Unknown No-Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful. A little later on in the program today, we're going to be talking about um, the cures for liturgical abuse and uh, what uh, Pope Francis had to say about the Novus Ordo in his uh, latest um, Modu Proprio, Traditionis Custodes. But right now, um, I want to talk about a new translation of the Bible. New English translation. Now, if you're a regular listener <clears throat> to this program, you know that I have made no secret of my preference for the douay Reims translation, particularly because it is a faithful, you know, pretty much word-for-word English translation of St. Jerome's Latin Vulgate, and the Vulgate, of course, is, is uh, probably the most important of the Catholic translations of the Bible, Uh, According to the Council of Trent, after many centuries of use and approval, the Latin Vulgate should be held as authentic in public lectures, disputations, sermons, and expositions. And furthermore, no one is to dare or presume to reject it under any pretext, whatever. (laughs) Okay, so I like the doué uh, because it's faithful to the Vulgate. But I am not like some kind of, you know, King James only Protestant. Because I find real value in uh, and therefore regularly consult a variety of English translations. In my work as a catechist and a Catholic speaker, uh, I most often refer to the New American Bible simply because since 1970, this has been the official Bible in English for the United States. It's the one that's used in uh, all of the, in mass, in the Nova Sordomise in English here in the U.S. And therefore, it's the one that most American Catholics are familiar with, right? So it just makes sense. Um, in my book, Confessions of a Traditional Catholic, um, the scripture quotations, unless otherwise noted, all scripture quotations taken from the RSVCE, the Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition. That was not my choice. That's just the editorial policy of my publisher, um, Ignatius Press. Um, But uh, in my speaking, my writing, this podcast, obviously, um, even as a diocesan catechist, I've been known to turn to the Douai Reims and and to the Vulgate, actually, um, uh, because, you know, the the New American Bible is just kind of deficient in in its uh, uh, translation. But um, looking for a modern English translation and an alternative to some of the more egregiously translated passages in the New American Bible— I've had recourse to even the Good News translation or the contemporary English version, which uh, have, they both, you know, boast of bishops and promoter, but they're primarily ecumenical translations uh, that were done by the American Bible Society. Now, thankfully, my search for a more formal but still reader-friendly modern English Catholic Bible translation is over. Uh, It is the New Catholic Bible from the Catholic Book Publishing Corporation, formerly the Catholic Book Publishing Company. I see they've incorporated. Um, now, no translation of the Bible is perfect. I'll start there, and that includes this one. But as they say, uh, the best version of the Bible for you is the one that you're going to read. And, and there's some truth to that. And if you are someone who regularly reads the New American Bible, which is most uh, English-speaking American Catholics, um, and, but you chafe at some of the translations, like me, this just might be the Bible for you. And now I I don't normally endorse any kind of products uh, on this podcast, um, but but and, and I'm in no way affiliated with Catholic Book Publishing Company, I mean, other than the fact that I've used and enjoyed their products, you know, ever since my conversion. Uh, you I'm sure you know Catholic Book Publishing Company. I have some of their things here. They they're the ones that publish the uh, the Saint Joseph uh, New Saint Joseph Baltimore Catechism, right? I'm just, if you're a Catholic homeschooler, I know that you're familiar with that. Uh, also, if you got kids, or even if you know when you were a kid, you're probably familiar with the uh, the little booklets uh, or these kind of picture books from Father Lavosick, right? He uh, uh, and Father lavosic was uh, followed. His heir apparent was Father Jude Winkler, who's a uh, conventional Franciscan that uh, has taken over the writing of these little children's books, and they're terrific, you know, and and so uh, conservative and and. Uh, Traditional Catholics alike uh, make use of those materials very, uh, um, very often. Now, um, uh, they have published their own version, their own English translation of the Bible. And uh, I, I want to uh, give you a little bit of history on it. Uh, in 2002, Catholic Book Publishing Company actually produced a, uh, a translation, a new English translation of the Psalms. They called it the New Catholic Version. And it was very well received and positive reviews, uh, positively reviewed, and uh, especially the rather voluminous notes, the footnotes that uh, were more pastoral in nature and less like historical critical, um, you know, and therefore, in my opinion, of much greater value to the average reader. And then uh, a number of years later, the New Catholic Version of the New Testament followed. Okay, that, that came out in 2015. And like the New Catholic Version Psalms, it was well received, and for the same reasons, you know. And I, I have a, a copy of the, I got a paperback copy of it here, the uh, New Catholic Version of the New Testament. I also have a, a little a vest pocket version that I sometimes uh, carry when I travel. Uh, and the thing about it is that because of the um, reception of the Psalms and their New Testament version. Uh, there was a great deal of interest in them producing a complete translation. Hence, the New Catholic Bible, which, unbeknownst to me, was actually published in 2019. So it was in the midst of all this COVID stuff, and I you know, got to pick out when I, when I wasn't paying attention and when the Catholic bookstores were closed. Um, but uh, you know, the, the New Catholic Version Psalms and New Testament, even Psalms and New Testament together, are still available. And like I said, I showed you a couple here. But um, the New Catholic Bible right? The whole Bible is now available and in several editions, soft cover, hard cover. the did new Duralux, which I really like, uh, and Catholic book publishing company has been putting stuff out in the Duralux covers for some time now. And they're really, I'm, mean, they're gorgeous and, you know, just high quality. Uh, you know, the bindings stay together nicely and stuff. I use my <clears throat> prayer book and my Bibles from them every single day and they're holding up really well. Um, Anyway, they got pocket size, personal size, large print, my own personal favorite, giant print, which I'm going to be picking up my giant print uh, uh, copy hopefully later this week. And also, and again, especially for me personally, this is great, Catholic Book Publishing Company put up, a, a, a struck a deal with BibleGateway.com, and so they've made the New Catholic Bible now available in a searchable digital format online, all right, for free. So you can check it out there. And by the way, BibleGateway.com is just a terrific resource uh, for Bible study and especially for writing because not only can you, um, you know, it makes all these different Bible versions available to you to compare and contrast, and it also gives you the ability to cut and paste. So if you're going to quote something. By the way, speaking of that, the New Catholic Version of the Bible has a, um, a pretty liberal quote policy. They uh, they allow um, you to quote uh, up to 200 verses, as long as it doesn't comprise a whole book of the Bible. Up to 200 verses without written permission, and so that's that's also valuable. But the important thing, I mean, the most important thing, obviously, about any Bible, and this is no exception, is the translation. And that task was undertaken by a team of scripture scholars under the direction of the Reverend Jude Winkler. Right, I told you he was writing the the children' book. He's heir apparent to Father um, And according to CB. PC, Catholic Book Publishing Company, Father Winkler and his team worked for over 30 years to produce this uh this translation. And and they wanted to to render a predominantly word-for-word translation of formal equivalence it's called as opposed to dynamic equivalence. And we'll look at the difference in a second. Numerous translations were consulted, decisions were made by consensus according to accepted principles of textual criticism. So in many cases, the new um Catholic Bible is almost identical to the New American Bible. But in many important ways, it is significantly different. Let me give an example. This is John 14, verses 15 through 17. It's about the promise of the Holy Spirit. And here's the New American Bible version. In the words of Jesus, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you always. The Spirit of Truth which the world cannot accept because it neither sees nor knows it, but you know it because it remains with you and will be in you. I suspect you've already noticed the problem. Why on earth does the New American Bible refer to the Holy Spirit as it? See, the the footnote in the New American Bible talks about Uh, the term spirit of truth being used at Qumran to denote a moral force that God puts into a person's soul, blah, blah, blah. Maybe so. But Jesus is referring to the advocate, capital T, capital A, the third person of the Holy Trinity. Now, their, their New American Bible notes go on to say, while it has been customary to use masculine personal pronouns in English for the advocate, the Greek word for spirit is neuter, and the Greek text and manuscript variants fluctuate between masculine and neuter pronouns. Okay, first off, I hate this historical critical claptrap. Ancient Greek is not modern English, okay? And the New American Bible usage is not merely neuter. The use of the word which is the giveaway. The spirit of truth which the world cannot accept as opposed to the spirit of truth whom the world cannot accept. Which can apply to an impersonal force, but it cannot apply to a person any more than it can. No other English Bible translation that I was able to find, Protestant or Catholic, uses the pronoun it in these verses. Now, whatever possessed the New American Bible Translators to use it in reference to the Holy Spirit, the fact remains that in English, it denotes a thing. Okay, so for example, an inanimate object like a table lamp, uh, you know, or even a living thing like a dog or a cat, but never a person. Right? Allow me to demonstrate. Imagine you heard this soundbite on the radio. President Biden arrived in Timbuktu today. The president, which has often given its opinion on certain matters, will meet with government, rep- government representatives tonight when it will address many topics it considers important. OK, obviously, uh, to speak of the President of the United States in that matter uh, manner would be unacceptably disrespectful. Well, the same goes for the Holy Spirit, only infinitely more so. And it makes that new American Bible translation at least flirt with heresy. So let's turn to the new Catholic Bible. Same verses, John 14:15 through 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. Notice forever is supposed to always. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot accept because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him because he dwells with you and will be in you. Now this is much better. You know, uh, because, well, first I speaking of ancient languages. The translation's in tune with Jerome's Latin Vulgate. Remember, Jerome was, was a Latin scholar. In fact, one of the four great Latin doctors of the church. But more to the point, Koine Greek was his native language. And being a native speaker of the original biblical language puts St. Jerome in a, a unique position to understand the language of the New Testament better than any modern scholar could ever hope to including the translators of the New American Bible. And so you you look at it in the do way, which is word for word from the Vulgate. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete, advocate, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not nor knoweth him, but you shall know him, because he will abide with you and be in you. With the exception of paraclete instead of advocate and the 16th century grammar this is virtually identical to the new catholic bible version translation I'm going to talk about this a little bit more on the other side but you can see I'm pretty excited and I hope that you'll stay with us and learn more right after this here on virgin most powerful radio stay with us. Welcome back. It's uh, no nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and we were talking about the uh, new version of New English Translation of the Bible, uh, which is the New Catholic Bible. And the New Catholic Bible has been approved for private reading and study. Uh, you know, it has an imprimatur, It's it's approved by uh, a bishop's council, bishop's conference, um, and so forth. You know, it, it, and so like the Revised Standard Version or, you know, the Douay-Rheims or any of the other uh, Catholic Bibles, um, it is approved. But um, the New American Bible is exclusively used for liturgy in this country. So it's not, it's not a liturgical translation, it's one for, for reading and study. And as a result, I think it's just, it's going to be my go-to scripture where I would have gone to the NAB before I will now go to the NCB, simply because of uh, uh, the translation, and uh, especially because it's more formal. Um, and, but in some places, um, it's just simply clearer, you know, uh, and in some places, uh, it, it really corrects trans- translational missteps. For example, New Catholic Bible translation of Luke 128 is hail full of grace, right? And that corresponds uh, to the doué, and, you know, it's the classic translation. Um, in according to Liturgium Authenticum from Pope John Paul back in the year 2000 uh, and the guidelines of um, translation for the liturgy it has been corrected in the lectionary it says hail full of grace when you, know, when you go to mass and they read Luke 128 that's what you're going to hear but the New American Bible still has Luke 21:28 as hail favored one and, and I guess that's still better than the 1970 New American Bible that said "Greetings, highly favored daughter." But you know, obviously, "Hail, full of grace," is the best translation of "Ave, Gracia Plena." But as I said, in some in some uh, cases, it's just clearer. For example, First Corinthians two nine, in the New American Bible says, "But as it is written, what eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and what not has not entered the heart the human heart." <laughs> Let me try it again. But as it is written, what eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and what has not entered the human heart, what God has prepared for those who love him. Like, what? <laughs> as uh, 1 Corinthians 2, nine in the New Catholic Bible says, for as it is written, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has the human heart imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Okay, so you don't, you don't need a, a brochure to understand what that says. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a fresh and lively, but in, in most cases, more accurate translation. And, you know, and there's plenty of other examples, but you get the picture. Uh, one last thing, it's always bothered me that the New American Bible does not capitalize the H in Holy Spirit or the T in Spirit of Truth, for example, but the New Catholic Bible does. So, if like me, you are used to the New American Bible, but you've always found you know, the rendering of certain passages cringeworthy, uh, then the NCB is a great alternative. I think it's a real breath of fresh air and it's a genuine blessing. And if you're interested, I recommend you go to BibleGateway.com and check it out. You can find the uh, NCB also at your local Catholic bookstore, or you can order direct from Catholic Book Publishing. Dot com. I'm sorry, I didn't take the time to, to try and get a, a representative there to interview them about the the translation. I'm 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 that excited about it. I think it's really going to be a, a boon uh, to me this year. You know, when I'm go to, to teach RCIA, I don't have the latitude to teach out of the Douay Rheims Bible and the and the Roman Catechism, right? But this is going to give me a good church approved modern English uh, Catholic uh, translation to use. That's very you know similar to the one that people are used to. All right, um, we've been talking over the last couple of weeks about traditionis Custodes. I have not been thrilled, as you might imagine, with uh, Pope Francis's, um, well, for lack of a better term, attack on the traditional Latin Mass. But um, in the letter to the bishops that accompanies traditionis Custodes, Pope Francis writes in the, uh, the penultimate paragraph, he says, quote, at the same time, so at the same time as your, you know, uh, uh, Muzzling the traditional mass. He said, at the same time, I ask you to be vigilant in ensuring that every liturgy be celebrated with decorum and fidelity to the liturgical books promulgated after Vatican Council II without the eccentricities that can easily degenerate into abuses. Now, uh, I, this you know, is along the lines of what um, Pope Benedict said in his letter to the bishops that accompanied Summorum Pontificum, although he was a little more to the point. Here he's talking about eccentricities that could degenerate into abuses. Well, I I think that uh, Benedict XVI was more candid when he told the bishops that, you know, we have to be frank, that it was precisely uh, lack of fidelity to the liturgical books, right? Unfaithful celebrations of the new Mass that has actually driven a lot of people to seek out the old Mass. And I know that's true because that's that's the story of my life. That's so many of the people that I know that go to the traditional mass uh, at our parish, and and all over. I mean, the last fourteen years, I've traveled all over the English-speaking world, North and uh, you know, North America, the U.S. and, and Canada, and Australia, and, and other you know, uh, parts of the British Empire, and uh, you know, people that uh, that have the parishes where there's both the the traditional Latin Mass and the Novus Ordo, the celebration of the Novus Ordo um, tends to be, you know, more sober. It tends to, to be of a of a higher caliber, if you will. And there's far less liturgical abuse. Um, but but if you go and you talk to those people at the traditional Latin Mass, they'll be the first to tell you, I came here because of my other parish, you know, and, and then they rattle off their litany of liturgical abuses. So it's a real issue. And I'm... And I want to take the Pope at his word. He says this is a mandate to the bishops of the world to be vigilant, to ensure that every liturgy is celebrated with decorum and fidelity to the liturgical books promulgated after Vatican Council II. They have a mandate. The bishops have a mandate from Pope Francis to put a stop to liturgical abuse once and for all. But since liturgical abuse is ubiquitous, in the United States Church, and since there are so many legitimate options in the Novus Ordo Missae that it's hard for, you know, a regular person to keep them straight, you know, it takes a virtual expert in the liturgy to discern what's an abuse and what's allowed these days, where do you even start? Where do you begin if you're a bishop who's ensuring fidelity to the liturgical books? Well, fortunately, Pope Francis gives us the answer. He twice invokes St. John Paul II uh, along, well, first along with St. Paul VI, who originally promulgated the Novus Ordo. Pope John Paul II uh, issued his own edition of that Missal, and he also was very much concerned with liturgical abuse. And so having invoked the name of St. John Paul II, John Paul the Great, um, well, thank heaven, he issued the document Ecclesia de Eucharistia, Church of the Eucharist, in 2003. He is the one who promulgated uh, the the document Liturgium Authenticum, which tells you how you are to, you know, and we've got the corrected translation of the Missal now. And Ecclesia de Eucharistia tells us about uh, how bad liturgical abuse is and promises to address those specific concerns. He said in Ecclesia de Eucharistia, this is John Paul II, I consider it my duty, therefore, to appeal urgently that the liturgical norms for the celebration of the Eucharist be observed with great fidelity. And those same words that Pope Francis used. These norms are a concrete expression of the authentically ecclesial nature of the Eucharist. This is their deepest meaning. Liturgy is never anyone's private property, be it of the celebrant or of the community in which the mysteries are celebrated. Precisely to bring out more clearly this deeper meaning of liturgical norms, I have asked the competent offices of the Roman Curia to prepare a more specific document, including prescriptions of a juridical nature on this very important subject. And that document was Redemptionis Sacramentum, as I mentioned last week, was approved on March the 19th of 2004, and then promulgated on St. George's Day the following April 2004. So, uh, Pope Francis has given us the answer to where the bishop can turn to ensure liturgical fidelity in his diocese, uh, and that is this Redemptionis Sacramentum, which is the Magna Carta of the proper celebration of the new liturgy. Uh, it is, its full title is Redemptionis Sacramentum, the Sacrament of Redemption, on certain matters to be observed or to be avoided regarding the Most Holy Eucharist. Here, the good bishops will find everything they need to know to ensure that, per Francis, every liturgy be celebrated with decorum and fidelity to the liturgical books promulgated after Vatican Council II without the eccentricities that can degenerate into abuses. Okay, so there's a preamble to Redemptionis Sacramentum wherein the Pope says, Pope John Paul II, It is my hope that the present encyclical letter will effectively help to banish the dark clouds of unacceptable doctrine and practice. He goes on to say this instruction has the purpose of a call to duty, right? To set forth for bishops as well as for priests, deacons, and all the lay Christian faithful, how each should carry them out in accordance with his own responsibilities and the means at his disposal. Okay, so... um, he tells us that liturgical abuses are harmful and must cease. All right. Now I mentioned last week that unfortunately this has been something of a dead letter. I think that uh, uh, Pope Benedict XVI issued some more on Pontificum. Uh, on the one hand, yes, to to help you know heal the, the schism with St. Pius the Society, but also as he himself admitted, to to give people an alternative because of the fact that, you know, that liturgical abuses have not been corrected. That from 2004 to 2007, very little was done practically to put an end to liturgical abuse. So um, in this preamble, it says, liturgical abuses are harmful and must cease. They contribute to the obscuring of the Catholic faith and doctrine. Well, that's true enough. Not infrequently, abuses are rooted in a false understanding of liberty. True. Ecumenical initiatives indulge in Eucharistic practices contrary to the discipline by which the Church expresses her faith, and abuses are often based on ignorance, and that they involve a rejection of those elements whose deeper meaning is not understood. The document goes on to correct them, and we're going to look at that when we come back. Stay with us here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, No Nonsense Catholic. We'll be back right after this. Okay, folks, talking about um, uh, Tradiciones Custodes and the letter to the bishops that accompanied it, and the little talked about admonition of Pope Francis that um, celebrations of the Novus Ordo Mise must be uh, in fidelity to the liturgical books promulgated after Vatican Council II, and how. Um, bishops can look for direction to the Magna Carta of the uh, authentic celebration of the Novus Ordo, which is called Redemptionis Sacramentum, came out in 2004. And we're looking at the preamble to that instruction, and um, one of the things it says here is that, um, well, it states firmly that anyone, and that would be a bishop or priest, quote, who permits himself to treat the liturgy according to his own whim, or by giving free reign to his own inclinations, even if he is a priest and injures the substantial unity of the Roman rite, which ought to be vigorously preserved, the result is uncertainty in matters of doctrine, perplexity and scandal on the part of the people of God, and almost as a necessary consequence, vigorous opposition. And that is an oblique reference to the Society of St. Pius X, to the traditional movement in general. Because yes, I started out, as, as so many traditional Catholics do. You start out by opposing the abuses. But as that continues and nothing's done to correct it, then it leads to opposing the right itself. And you know, and I've and I've watched it happen uh, to any number of people that I know personally. Um, the, um, Redemption in Sacramento goes on to say it is the right. Of all Christ's faithful, that the liturgy, and in particular the celebration of Holy Mass, should truly be as the Church wishes, according to her stipulations as prescribed in the liturgical books and in the other laws and norms. Likewise, the Catholic people have the right uh, that the sacrifice of the Holy Mass should be celebrated for them in an integral manner according to the entire doctrine of the Church's magisterium. We have a right to this Mass. You know, even the Novus Ordo Mass to be celebrated properly, authentically. You know, I can tell you, like I was saying, me personally, if the Novus Ordo Missa, when I converted to the Catholic Church, I knew nothing about the traditional Latin Mass. I assumed that the, the Novus Ordo Missae was, uh, was just the Latin Mass translated into English, although the, the differences are, are quite more profound, as you discover when you go start going to the traditional Latin Mass. But uh, the point is, the point to make here, is if the, the, the bishops and priests that, that I had encountered in my life as a Catholic had simply been you know, faithful to the liturgical prescriptions of the Novus Ordo, I would never have sought out the traditional Mass in the first place. I would have been content if they had simply done what they ought and, in fact, what they are bound to do. It says, all of the norms and exhortations set forth in this instruction are connected with the mission of the Church, whose task it is to be vigilant concerning the correct and worthy celebration of so great a mystery. I was talking with uh, Terry on the Terry and Jesse show earlier today, and uh, tangentially I brought up the fact that uh, While our Lord had a lot of harsh things to say about hypocrisy and about uh, the religious leaders of his own day, the only thing that ever made him angry enough to become physically violent was liturgical abuse. And if our Lord takes it that seriously, I think that we need to take it seriously too. Christ's faithful have the right that ecclesiastical authorities should fully and efficaciously regulate the sacred liturgy lest it ever seem to be anyone's private property. And this uh, section of the instruction on the regulation of the sacred liturgy, uh, it outlines the authority and the obligation of the bishops. He said the bishop is the one who sets forth liturgical norms in his diocese to by which all are bound. Uh, but it says, but he must also correct liturgical abuses. It says there has long been a need for bishops to make sure that the experts who advise them, right, because that's the thing, how many, uh, how many uh, bishops hand this off to the liturgists, to the liturgical experts. Okay, well, he has the duty to make sure that they are known for their soundness in the Catholic faith, as well as for their knowledge of theological and cultural matters. Okay, it's great that you've got your finger on the pulse of the modern world. It's great that you're a theologian. But man, you must be well-formed in the Catholic faith. That must be the thing that you're known for. And then this same section also cautions that the diocesan norms that a bishop uh, uh, has, right, must not limit the pastoral freedom for certain variations and celebrations in a particular group of circumstances, provided they are in accordance with the liturgical books. In other words, you need to make allowances for the valid options that are available, all right, the valid options. And I think that it's important that you recognize that those valid options include the use of Latin and Gregorian chant, and celebration ad orientum and any number of other things. You know, there was uh, I just uh, read today that there was a bishop in, or a, a priest in Costa Rica who said the Novus Ordo Mass in Latin facing the altar, and was punished by his bishop uh, for not you know for for violating the 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 rules here. And apparently this bishop is unaware that according to the, you know, Latin and ad orientum is the, the presumption of the aditio typica of, of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the normative form of the Novus Ordo Mass is, is Latin. You know, the normative way of receiving communion is kneeling on the tongue. Okay? I mean, there, there are options, but that's, that's normative, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, a scandal that a bishop would not be aware that this is the case. But as I said to Terry, unfortunately, we've had a generation of priests who were not well formed, and, and they eventually become bishops. I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of my conservative Catholic friends, were scandalized by Pope Francis. And I remember years and years ago when Bill Clinton was elected president, and I said, you know, they were, they were so scandalized by that, and I said, you must have realized That sooner or later, you know, men from the World War II generation would no longer be available to become president. Eventually, we were going to have a baby boomer. Eventually, there's going to be a a millennial in the White House. You know, it's just the inevitability of time. And the same thing here. Eventually, um, a a cardinal was going to become pope who was completely formed after Vatican II. You know, And, and yeah, naturally, he's going to have a different... Uh, uh, mindset than his predecessors. You know, it, it's just, you know, uh, something that we need to deal with, not to be upset about the fact that time is just passing. All right. Um, it also says that cooperation amongst the bishops is essential because the sacred liturgy expresses and celebrates the one faith professed by all. And being the heritage of the whole church, it cannot be determined by local churches in isolation from the universal church. For example, here in the United States, uh, our conference of Catholic bishops have declared that after thirty years um, of practice, receiving communion standing and in the hand is the norm in the United States. Well and good, but the universal norm is kneeling and on the tongue. So if a Catholic presents himself for communion kneeling on the and you know with his hands clasped and his mouth open, the the uh, minister needs to give him communion on the tongue because he has a right to receive it that way, regardless of your local norm. All right? Okay. You can't deny him the, the Eucharist on the basis of, well, that's not how we do it here. Okay. Um, and so, you know, a, a bishop is not free to mandate liturgical practices in his own diocese that are in ovations or that are substantially different from the practices of other bishops. Okay. Uh, and it would hardly seem to require special emphasis, but it it does <laughs> because of the 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 concrete situation of the church especially. and they they even you know single out in the United States uh, in this this article here. Um, uh, the instruction briefly reviews uh, the authority of the bishops conferences citing other documents. Um, okay. now authentic p- participation of the lay faithful. This, of course, was the battle cry of Sacrosanctum Concilium. It's all over that document. Active participation of the faithful, active participation of the faithful. And I'll tell you something right now. I believe that, uh, and I'm going to talk about this some next week, that um, Pope Benedict had hoped that the celebration of the traditional Latin mass at diocesan churches, where they also have the Novus Ordo, that the two uh, forms of the rite, as he you know, uh, conceived it, would be mutually beneficial. And I've I've seen it. Again, 14 years, I traveled all over the English-speaking world and and saw these parishes where there was traditional Latin Mass and Novus Ordo Mass together. And you can see that the Novus Ordo tends to be more faithfully celebrated according to the Novus Ordo rubrics. And, you know, uh, I think in the other direction that you see the traditional Latin Mass, you see the people participating. Most people have their own missals, or if not, they're using the the, uh, the missalette, like you do at the Novus Ordo. Only it's the uh, um, the ubiquitous little red book that was put up by Una Voce that has the ordinary, the mass in it, and then they have inserts for every Sunday and holy day for the proper prayers and readings of the day. And so you know everybody's following along. People are all saying the responses and they're singing along with the with the scola. You know that's very much my my experience of it and so you know active participation the, but the point of it is it needs to be conscious and of course it is if you have to you know read it out of your missile in in latin with the uh, english on the in the adjacent column you're that's as active as you can possibly be <laughs> when you're participating because it requires you know your attention uh you don't get to just like stand there and and ah, also with you ah, nah, nah. right which unfortunately you see that kind of lackluster participation at a lot of, you know, Novus Ordo masses. Uh, Let's see. The fact that the mass is a sacrifice, it's really emphasized. And also, Redemptionis Sacramentum is very clear that there should be no clericalization of the laity, all right? We've seen, you know, he says It says it's important for people to understand that the Eucharistic sacrifice is not to be considered a con-celebration of the priest with the people, and and for a celebration of the Eucharist, that the community absolutely, absolutely requires an ordained priest, because there are places where people are, are denying that, where they think they can have Mass without a priest, where they think that the people are essential, uh, you know, like they're con-celebrating in the consecration, as opposed to the priest... Um, pre, uh, pre, uh, celebrating in Persona Criste. All right, I'm, we've run out of time. Seriously, I'm up against uh, the hard end here. But we're going to talk more about this next week. We're going to look at the Novus Ordo Mese. We're going to take a, a, a good look at that and see um, what you should be looking for in the proper celebration at your own parish. All of that and lots more. By the way, um, this September, we do have a conference coming up. Go to vmpr.org. Right there on the homepage, you can check out the upcoming events and uh, download the smartphone app and, and uh, pretty much everything that you need to know. All of the shows are archived there. And uh, you can also hit that donate button and uh, help us out financially as well as with your prayers. And so until next time, thanks for listening. And may God richly bless you and your family.